One of the best ways to learn about prayer, what it is and how you should do it, is to study the prayers of the Lord's people, which God has graciously seen fit to record for us in the Bible. And the prayers of men like David always seem to be particularly helpful. David is one of those warts and all characters in the Bible in whom you see astonishing depths of faith and spiritual understanding, and yet alongside that, a great vulnerability and lack of consistency, which I think really resonates with all of us. He is strong and he is weak. He is up and he is down. He shows us everything that a believer ought to be and many things that a believer should never be. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And through it all, he has this very real, living, personal relationship with God. One of the things that really strikes me about David's prayers is that they reflect something that I so frequently see in myself. If you isolate certain lines and phrases as he prays, you could think he's absolutely terrified and has almost no assurance whatsoever. So in Psalm 27, verses 7 and 9, for example, you hear him saying, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me, answer me, do not hide your face from me, Don't turn your servant away in anger. Don't leave me or forsake me. It all sounds so very despairing. Where's that great hero who slew Goliath? But then at the same time, and mingled with these lines, you also have great statements of hope and trust. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. O God of my salvation, the Lord will take care of me. It seems to me David exemplifies that which will often be the state of God's people, this strange mixture of doubt and assurance, faith and fear, despair and hope, but an assurance which always overcomes doubt, a faith which always overcomes fears, hope which always triumphs over despair. It's that, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief that we find in the New Testament. I think that's what draws us to him. We, we see so much of ourselves in David, or well, I do at least. But more than that, he constantly points us to the God who is his saviour. The God who has shown him such faithfulness. The God who has been so long suffering with him. A God who abounds in mercy, grace and loving kindness. Well, let me encourage you to have verses 7, 8, 9 and 10 of Psalm 27 open 
in front of you. And I want to draw out from those verses three uh, lessons about God and our attitude to him in prayer. When we think about these things, I, I trust that at the end of it all, you'll be thinking, well, why would I not pray? Why would you not pray? Well, first of all, let's think about God's invitation. God's invitation. How do you imagine God to be in terms of your ability to approach him and his willingness to accept you? Well, firstly, we need to make one thing very clear. What we're witnessing in David is a man who is a believer, who is communing with the God whom he worships as his light and salvation and the strength of his life. That's back in the first verse. You cannot approach God any way you like, nor can you invent your own terms by which you think God should be willing to accept you. David's relationship with God is on the basis of what God has made known to David by means of God's own revelation of himself. What does David mean when he speaks of God as being his light and salvation? Well, the much quoted 51st Psalm points us in the right direction. If God is your light and your salvation, what kinds of things should you see in such a person? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's this. Here's what David wrote in the 51st Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. See, David has that light to be able to see those things in God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You see, he understands that God is, God has to be his saviour. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. So confession of sin. I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Light has come into his soul, you see. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Back to salvation. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity, iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so on. Light and salvation has entered the soul of David. Now it's a man who's been there. It's a man who's prayed like that. 
in Psalm 51 who were listening to praying in Psalm 27. So before we go any further, you need to ask yourself whether you've ever prayed like David prayed in Psalm 51. Do you see and understand that it's on the basis of God's mercy and loving kindness that you are able to know him? Have you acknowledged and confessed your sins as David did? Have you pleaded with God to deal mercifully with you, to wash you and cleanse you from your sin? Have you understood that there is nothing about you in your sin that makes you acceptable to God? Nothing at all. But he is able to bring about within you the radical change that is necessary. Have you found the joy that David knew in being reconciled to God by means of the salvation that God has provided. And as we saw last week, as we'll see again this evening, all of this experience of God which David knew was that of a saved man by means of the Lord Jesus Christ. For David, that certain atoning redeeming work of the Saviour. For David, that lay 1,000 years in the future. For me and you, it lies 2,000 years in the past. Because it, it, it all, of course, depends upon real events at a real point in human history. But as a believer, it doesn't matter whether you're looking forward to it in time or whether you're looking back at it as a historical event. It's still that same once-for-all sacrifice, which is the one hope and certainty for all who will be saved and cleansed and forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. So when God says, seek my face, Where we see David in Psalm 51 is where you must begin. As you hear him speaking of God as his light and his salvation in the opening verse of of Psalm 27, that's where you must begin. At the place where God has established for you forgiveness, redemption, washing, cleansing, acceptance. When God says, seek my face, You begin at the cross of Christ with a broken and repentant heart. How do you imagine God to be in terms of your ability to approach him and his willingness to accept you? Well, one thing is wonderfully clear from those three simple words in verse 8 where God says, Seek my face. God is not some belligerent, cantankerous being who has to be cajoled and provoked into even taking any notice of you. Do you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Israel had a wicked king called Ahab and he had an even more wicked wife, Jezebel. Between them, They've led the nation of Israel into great idolatry, uh, worshipping the pagan gods of Baal and Asherah. Elijah is God's prophet 
who is constantly confronting Ahab and Jezebel. And they have a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. It's recorded in the 18th chapter of 1 Kings. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is that you, O trouble of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. And let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken and the story continues and uh, all the prophets of Baal and Asherah 850 of them in all call upon the name of these pagan gods and for hour after hour they keep calling and calling and eventually they start cutting themselves with stones and all kinds of ridiculous things in order to try and cajole and provoke the gods to send down fire and of course, no fire comes. Well, then it's Elijah's turn. And he actually gets them to throw water onto the sacrifice. And they soak it through with water. Three times they do it. And then Elijah, in comparison to all of those pagan priests, simply says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these thing, things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's what we read in Psalm 115, isn't it? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever, his, whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver 
and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell, hands, but do not handle, feet, but do not walk. They utter no words from their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God was just waiting for Elijah to seek his face. And he answered from heaven. This one true living God says, seek my face. He invites you to come to him, to seek after him, to know him, to learn of him, to trust him, obey him, to place all your hope in him, to know his will. Seek his face. God longs for you to return to him and to keep on turning to him. And as we saw last week from 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God shines his light into our hearts in order that we might behold him in all his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. To seek God's face is to come to Christ to come to God through Christ. And God invites us because he longs for us to come. He waits for us to come, draws us that we may come. And as David prays, he knows that he is certain of a hearing with God. One of the most frustrating things in life is when you feel that people are only paying you lip service. They're not really listening to what you have to say. They're not really interested in what you, in what you have to say. It makes no difference whatsoever what you say to them and whatever they say to you in return. It just rings hollow and shallow. It can happen in the home between husband and wife or between parents and children. It can happen in the workplace between an employee and their employer or their line manager. It happens all, all the time in the world of politics, if you can bear to follow any of it. It is sometimes an accusation levelled against elders by members of a church. I'm sure all of you, in one form or another, in one place or another, know what I'm talking about. Uh, I hope I'm not the object of such frustration for you. It never happens when you turn to God in response to his invitation to seek him. That's such a, such a reassuring thing, isn't it? God actually wants you to come to him. He invites you to come. He invites you to seek him. If you're someone who struggles with prayer, if you're someone who for some reason is reluctant to attend the church prayer meeting, or you never do, 
I want to encourage you to consider these three words which come from the mouth of your God and Saviour. Seek my face, he says. Why wouldn't you? Why don't you? Because, secondly, look at God's nature. Now, preachers have devoted entire sermon series to consider the nature of God, and rightly so. Therefore, to have it as a single point within one sermon, you'll immediately appreciate this is going to be a very limited treatment of this subject. But something of the nature of God is revealed in these verses. And if we look at what's presented here, we'll see that David has very good reason indeed to accept the invitation of God and to seek his face. First of all, in verse 7, we see that God is merciful. He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. In his mercy, there is forgiveness. In his mercy, he is long-suffering towards us. In his mercy, he shows us kindness. And David has already known God's mercy. Yet he cries out again for mercy. Just as he does in the opening phrase of Psalm 51. This, you see, is very much the, the true position and experience of a believer. You're able to come to the Lord because of his mercy. And you come to the Lord as one who has already known his mercy. But you also come aware that you continually need his mercy. In Lamentations in chapter 3, we read these well-known verses. Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so David cries out, knowing that God has already been merciful to him, but understanding that God's mercy towards him continues to be such a necessary thing and something that is right for him to acknowledge before God. It is honouring to God to acknowledge his new mercies towards us day by day. We don't deserve them, but it's on account of who he is and this nature that he has. Secondly, God, says David, is his help. There's a lot tied up in that, isn't there? God has helped David in so many ways. I remember seeing a photograph of the Formula One racing driver, Lewis Hamilton, with all of the Mercedes Formula One team lined up behind him. There were hundreds of people without whose help he would be a nobody. So many people and their vast array of skills all required for him to do what he is famous for doing. I'm not going to even try to begin to tease out all the ways in which God has been a help to David 
But the issue here is that God is at work for David. God is on David's side. Or rather, God has brought David onto his side. God moves in his world with David in view. Kind of in a similar way in which Lewis Hamilton could turn around and look at all those faces who are all working together for his good when he sits in that car and gets behind the wheel. That has been their whole focus. They have been his help. You too, Christian friends, you may turn around and who can you see? You will see God in the face of Jesus Christ and he is, has been, will be your help through all of life in every situation. But actually it gets even better than that because for you with Christ, actually he isn't simply standing behind you. He dwells within you by his spirit who Jesus, remember, called the helper. In all the things you lack, he will be your supply. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer, we read in the Psalms. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And he won't hide his face from you, verse 9. And he won't turn you away in anger because he is your merciful helper. Why would you not seek such a God as this? Thirdly, he's a God of salvation, verse 9. And how can you not pause and think upon Christ whenever the word salvation is used? The Saviour hangs upon the cross, bleeding, suffering, in agony of body and soul. God the Father would point you to Calvary and he would have you look upon his crucified Son to tell you that this has been done in order that you and he may be reconciled to one another once again. That on account of this, as you look at Christ on the cross, on account of this, you may seek his face. So seek him on account of that salvation that you have in Christ. Why would you not pray to such a God as this? For then you would know him 
as your Father. To those who believe in Christ and receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And God is the perfect Father who will care for you. Think upon those wonderful verses in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the loving care that God has for his children. He points to creation, cites the great care that God has given, the great provision that God has in the world of creation, and then reminds the people how much more value they are compared to that. We've been watching lots of birds coming to the feeders that we have out in our garden with all of their young at this time of year, tiny little fledgling sparrows, the raucous juvenile starlings that flood into the garden and then squawk off again, even the louder squawking magpies and all of the parent birds frantically providing for each of them. When it comes to loving care and provision, there's nothing more basic than the care of a, of a parent, of a father and a mother. But even then, in this sinful world, even that's not guaranteed. But even if that does fail, there is one who is unfailingly faithful in his love and his care and his provision for his children. The Lord will take care of me. Can you say that? Why would you not pray to such a God as this? Do you know this God as your saviour and your father? Well, to conclude, let's just spend a few minutes thinking about David's cry. David's cry. It's such a simple prayer. That's good to know, isn't it? It's also a short prayer. We're almost halfway through it, really, by the time we get to verse 10. That will be an encouragement for some of you. It's a heartfelt prayer. Look at verse 8. This prayer is simply casting yourself completely upon the Lord. David brings nothing of himself, but turns fully to God. There is complete submission and surrender in this prayer. There is total dependence and reliance upon God in this prayer. You get a real sense here that if it were not for God, David would have been overwhelmed long ago. And he would have been. You get a real sense here that if it is not for God hearing and answering his prayer, David will soon be overwhelmed. And surely he would have been. You get a real sense here that this is a man for whom prayer like this is a familiar thing. He's been here before. He's done this before. He's said this before. This is a familiar place. Have you ever walked around um, an old castle or a very old house and uh, in a doorway or perhaps on a staircase there have been steps made of wood or stone and each one has a, a smooth 
rounded indentation in it where centuries of footsteps have gradually worn it away. If there had been just one place where David has, had always prayed, I'm talking about one physical place where he'd always gone to pray, like we read of Daniel going up to his room and opening his windows towards Jerusalem to pray. If there had been one place where David had always prayed, I think there would have been two indentations into which his knees would have fitted perfectly. If that were true of every believer, what kind of church might we be? You get a real sense here that this is a man for whom crying out to the Lord like this is a perfectly natural thing to do and is an absolutely vital thing for him to do. How on earth could you or I, with an example like David's in front of us, ever get the impression that prayer is a take it or leave it thing for a follower of Christ? Now we've a little more to learn next week as we look at the concluding three verses of David's prayer. But do we not see already what a glorious privilege it is to be able to raise your voice to God in prayer? Do you know this great privilege the way David did? The God who bids you come to him? The God who urges you to seek his face? The God who has secured your salvation through his Son and revealed his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He bids you come to him, that you seek after him. And he is only too ready and willing to receive you and to accept you to hear your prayer and to answer that you might be richly blessed as one who seeks after him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with one who loves, as one who loves him above all others, that he is your God your saviour, your friend. To whom else would you turn but to the living God? Why would you not pray to such a God as this? <laughs>